one. If you will slowly make your way back. And remain standing for the reading of God's word. Uh, for those of you who have not yet met, my name is Josh. I serve as the lead pastor. It is good to, good to be with you this morning. So <laughs> we have a lot to go through today. So let's get into our scripture reading for today. Uh, it comes out of Matthew 5. And by the way, at the end of this, we always pray. We're going to have some extended time of prayer uh, for everything that's going on in the world. Uh, and I would invite you to, to pray with me and, and to really uh, think about what you're praying and the people that you're praying for. So let's, let's read our scripture reading and then we'll spend some time in extended prayer. Matthew 5, starting in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his, his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is a city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers or sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we, we trust and know from the Bible that you oversee everything that's going on in the world. And, and we, so oftentimes, because of our, our smallness and our sense of misunderstanding, we, we just can't quite see what you're doing. And that is, that is certainly true right now. As we watch so much of our world in Ukraine and in Russia continue to fall apart, God, our, our hearts hurt from it. There's a reason this has captured the hearts of the world, because we know intuitively that this is not good. This is not something that you would have. This is not pleasing to you. This goes against your heart for humanity. And so we, we don't wanna move from that too quickly we want to feel that. We want to sense the value of the image of God in each, every human being and feel the, the lament that we should as we see that image so often being destroyed and run over. Father, we lament. But in our lament, we turn our hearts to you with a sense of, of crying to you because you're able to do something about it. 
And so, Father, we, we pray this morning that you would, you would intervene in this invasion. God, that, that by your power, you would turn the hearts of evil men and that you would humble Putin under your mighty hand. We say that clearly, that you would give him a Nebuchadnezzar type of humbling that removes his good sense and that humbles him away from power. God, I pray that you would continue to sustain life in Ukraine, that you would bring protection. God, that you would, you would sustain families as, as women and children have, have gone away and the men stay behind to fight. God, we pray that you would, you would work a miracle and that you would sustain. And we, we pray that for the church in Ukraine, God, that you would give them a sense of endurance and great witness. We, we thank you for the, uh, the encouraging and courageous endurance of the Ukrainian people in general, but we pray for that specifically for the Christians there, that you would give them a sense of courage because of who you are. I pray that your gospel would encourage them on this Sunday morning, that they would have already just explored the gospel and all that it means that you, God, are not absent Deism is a lie. You are involved in the world and you are bending the story of the world toward your son, Jesus Christ, who will be the one ruler, the one king who we can trust with our whole hearts and our whole world. So God, we say, would you, would you bring that day? Would your son return and set all of this aright by your might and your grace? And Father, as we, we turn to this complicated section in your word, would you give us help? Would you help our hearts to feel the, the call that Jesus gives us here and that we would be empowered by your spirit to lay aside the things that, that draw us into ourselves, that value ourselves above others. And we know that that's a work that only your spirit can do. So I ask that your spirit would unite your power with my weak words and bring devotion to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, before we get into our sermon, uh, I, I do want to, you know, I, I am very, as a pastor, very uh, allergic to trying to let every headline determine what we're talking about here at Icon. Uh, I think that's unhealthy. Um, but obviously, in a week that's had what's happened so far this week, uh, it, it necessitates actually addressing it. And so, we, you know, I want us to pray. And then I also just want to say one last thing before we jump in. And I mentioned this in a, in a sermon or in a video that we did for our Instagram. Um, you know, I want you to ask yourself, do the current discipleship practices that exist in your life today, are they enough to make you a resilient and faithful disciple in a world of crisis? I want, I want you, at, when you see things go on like you saw this week, I want you to ask yourself that question. Because here's the thing, crisis is not going anywhere. I think all, a lot of us thought that COVID was gonna make us more resilient, more disciple, uh, more, more faithful disciples, but we didn't realize that really we got pushed into our homes where we had all kinds of toys and streaming devices to distract ourselves. Um, it didn't really make us better disciples, I don't think. Uh, but a crisis like this, as you watch so much of the world feel like it's on fire, you, you should be asking yourself that question. If crisis continues to happen in our world, which by the way, it will, do your current discipleship practices as a follower of Jesus do enough for you to make you a faithful and resilient disciple in a world like that? 
I want you to answer that question because I think it's a, it's a question that you're going to have to continue to, to come back to in the world that, that we live in today. So that's it on that. Now on to the surprisingly lighter topic of divorce and retaliation. So we are uh, officially halfway through our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And for today's section, I, I think it's helpful for, for us to get our bearings again on exactly what, what Jesus is doing. So for the, for the last couple weeks, as we've talked about anger and talked about lust and sexual desire, uh, we've really been expounding upon, if you'll remember, what Jesus talks about in chapter, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, where he talks about him being the, the fulfillment of God's law, God's intention from the Old Testament, and, and how that places an invitation to us to give our hearts in full devotion to him. His call is to respond to the reality that he's the fulfillment of God's purposes and we respond with devotion. And I, and I think that reality is helpful to remember specifically for what we're talking about today. Because we, we find ourselves in a section of verses that are uh, very easy to, to misunderstand, right? Uh, people have built entire theologies uh, around these verses. The, re- the very real life questions of, of what constitutes valid grounds for divorce. And then, and then how, do, how do you treat those who we call enemies? Those are important questions, but they're also incredibly complex questions. And, and that complexity should, should give us, a, I think, a sense of caution before we start trying to build everything we think about one topic based off of just one verse. We need the complexity of the biblical witness. And I, and I want to give answers to some of those questions today. But again, I, I want us to focus in and remember of what Jesus is doing here, why he even brings up the topic of divorce and enemies in this section. Jesus is not just giving quick answers to, to widespread questions. He's, he's not doing a flyby on, on different topics so that you can have some quick answers or some quick life hacks. No, Jesus, throughout this section, I want you to hear this, throughout this section, including what we have to talk about today, he's trying to get you to examine your own heart by looking at how you deal with some of the most important real life situations and complexities. He wants you to examine yourself. It's that examination of the heart that Jesus calls us to today in our section. And when we remember that, that that's the the whole point of why Jesus brings up these things, it makes sense that Jesus says what he says in these verses. So in the last couple of weeks, we've expounded upon some, some vices like anger and lust and how to deal with sexual desire. And now... Jesus takes the examination of our heart that he's pulling us toward, and he puts it in the realm of relationships, specifically some very specific relationships that in the end make perfect sense. Let me just ask, are there any relationships we have that reveal the state of our hearts more than those we marry and those we call enemies? (laughs) Feels weird to say, but those are kind of the, you know, other than your kids, your kids are important, but those are very two important relationships in your life, who you marry and then who you identify as your enemy. Those two relationships can, can show you what type of person you are, that they reveal to us what we really value and who we really are. And this is why Jesus goes where he goes in these verses. 
He's choosing to, to talk about divorce and about retaliation because those relationships help us remove the, the pretense or the, the misconceptions we have about ourselves and show us what we're really like and, and what we really value. And friends, as, as Jesus lays down his demands on these important relationships, uh, I think it goes without saying that I should warn you, it might agitate some of you. <laughs> Jesus contradicts all of us on something. If Jesus contradicts you on nothing, it's not Jesus you're, you're following. In so many ways, Jesus might make us feel uncomfortable or, or, or challenged on a topic like this in relationships. Jesus' demands on how we think about our marriages and how we think about our enemies will inevitably irritate the modern day conception of, of marriage and enemies. We, our culture has a conception of what those two relationships are supposed to be like, right? And sadly, in our culture today, we, we treat both of these relationships with, with such flippancy. I mean, think about this with me. The category of marriage and commitment and covenant has been so eroded in our culture that the destruction of marriage through divorce is seen as what? In many ways, entertainment. <laughs> we, we entertain ourselves with the prospect of other people getting divorced. And listen, I'll be honest, you know this about me, I've shared this, I love The Bachelor. I love The Bachelorette. I love 90 Day Fiance, that's a new one. That's a, that's a new confession of mine to you. I love it, but is it not true that those shows like that what they're doing is eroding the sanctity of marriage. Shows like The Bachelor or 90 Day Fiance, they're shows that entertain us by dealing flippantly with the category of marriage. We get entertainment from that. Marriage has been eroded in our culture and the same is true of, of how we think about our enemies or how we treat our enemies all the way back to the days of the real world on MTV. Anybody else? Yeah? yeah. If you're over like 25, I guess, or 30. Since then, we've been gorging ourselves by being entertained with people who hate one another. And so unsurprisingly, Jesus's demands on our marriages and his demand on how we view our enemies will go against much of what we may have already absorbed from our culture. So, so let's, with that warning, let's, let's jump in. And, and let me start by, by giving you an idea of how we're gonna kind of walk through these, these topics. You, you might notice how this section of verses has really two main categories or, or two main ideas. Uh, and both of them each get two, uh, two ways that Jesus expounds upon them. So there's the ideas of promises or commitments or oaths, right? And Jesus expounds that through the commands around marriage and oaths. And then there's the idea of retaliation, which Jesus expounds through the commands of retaliation and loving our enemies. And, uh, you know, throughout this week, I thought to myself, how in the world are we going to make, through, <laughs> make it through all of this within 35 minutes? Uh, and so what we're, what we're going to do is we're going to look at just one section of each of those ideas uh, that I think are, are, are helpful and uh, contextual for our day today. So what we're going to do is we're going to look specifically at what Jesus says around divorce, because in many ways that's connected to his thing on oaths, and then we'll look at loving your enemies, which is obviously connected to retaliation. So 
Let's jump in by first looking at marriage and divorce. So, but you know, I guess before we get into what Jesus is actually doing here with his, his demand on our hearts, I do think it would be good for us to first answer the, the obvious question that this section brings up. What are the biblical grounds for divorce? Again, Jesus is doing something deeper here. He's trying to get to your heart and he, he's using the category of marriage and divorce to actually do that. But it, inevitably, it brings up the question, what's the actual grounds for divorce? So despite the brevity of what we see here in the text, this is a, this is a very complicated question, right? Uh, Jesus states that, the, that one of the main grounds for divorce is adultery, right? Easy to see in the text. Um, yet the, the word that Jesus uses here is not actually the, the word for adultery. The, the word that he uses is porneia, which is obviously the, the Greek word where we get... You guys got to talk back to me today, okay? I, I'm talking about divorce and retaliation. You got to help me out a little bit, okay? Yes, that's where we get the word pornography. And, and as you can imagine, uh, this term is kind of in some ways a, a junk drawer term. Uh, it conveys all kinds of sexual immorality and unfaithfulness from everything like actual adultery and cheating all the way to, to something like pornography use. And Jesus says that, that when a man or a woman indulges in porneia, they've broken the covenant they made. And because of that, there are reasonable grounds for divorce. Divorce isn't commanded as a result of porneia, but it is allowed here. So that's one, that's one aspect of this complex question. Yet it gets more complex because later in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul expands that, abandon, expands that breaking of the covenant into the category of abandonment. He says that if you are abandoned by your husband and wife who no longer desires to live with you, then that is a breaking of the covenant that's been made. And so the other spouse has reasonable grounds to initiate a divorce. So what, it, what is all this kind of leading us to or telling us? It, it tells us this. The biblical grounds for divorce center around a rupturing of the covenant that is so traumatic to that covenant that it is then possible to render that covenant null and void. I'm gonna say that again. The biblical grounds for divorce is when the covenant that's been made between a man and a woman is so ruptured, so assaulted, that it then can be rendered null and void. And the history of the church has, has really landed on three main ways in which the covenant of a marriage can be so assaulted that it can render it null and void. Obviously, sexual unfaithfulness, what Jesus shows here, abandonment, and then another one, abuse. Any of those instances show a marriage that has suffered a catastrophic rupture of the covenant that was made and therefore opens the possibility for divorce. Those are the three reasons why, when divorce can happen biblically. Sexual unfaithfulness, abandonment by one spouse, or the abuse of one spouse. All three of those are traumatic assaults on the covenant that's been made, and so therefore, divorce is allowed. Now, let's ask a simple question. Are those three reasons the only reason people get divorced today? <laughs> no. 
It's a hard no. Thank you. Thank you. In fact, they, they weren't even the, the only three reasons people got divorced in, in Jesus's day either, which is what gets us to what Jesus is actually trying to do in these verses. Surprisingly, it, it can kind of be argued that, that, that people in Jesus's day, some of them treated the covenant of marriage even lighter or more flippantly than, than most of us do today. It would rival 90 day fiance. Among the Jewish people, specifically the men, of course, the men of Jesus's day would use all kinds of bogus and ridiculous reasons to end their marriages. Sure, some of them would end because of sexual unfaithfulness or some of that other assault on the covenant, but also men would divorce their wives for much smaller things, like tiny things. Here's one, rabbis would teach like rabbis, imagine me as a pastor coming to you and say this, that if your wife burns your dinner too often, that is a valid ground for divorce. That's way worse than 90 day fiance, right? Gosh, marriage, like it often does in our culture, had become for the Jewish people another victim in the campaign of human selfishness. And it's this selfishness this self-centeredness that Jesus is wanting to address in these verses ultimately. Later in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 19, some of the Pharisees come to Jesus and start asking him a similar question about marriage and divorce. And they ask him, hey, why did Moses allow us to, to just tell us to just give our wives a certificate of divorce whenever we wanted it to? Why did Moses allow this if you're not allowing it? And Jesus' answer Moses did that. Moses allowed that because of your hardness of heart. That's why that, that Moses relented to your hardness of heart because you're so selfish, so self-centered and would not stop bothering him. He allowed you to get divorced. But Jesus says it was not so from the beginning. It was not so from the beginning. Jesus is saying that the intention of marriage was not meant to be treated so flippantly, was not meant to be assaulted by our selfishness. The, the Pharisees and the Jewish people, their hearts had been hardened by selfishness so much that they were willing to undo and break apart what God had called sacred, all for ridiculous, petty reasons. And it's this pettiness, this, this selfishness is the piece of the human heart that I think Jesus wants us to examine today. But let, let me ask you this. If you're married, who is your marriage for? Don't answer that out loud. <laughs> who is your marriage for? If you desire to be married, why do you desire to be married? Upon, upon what great value do we initiate our marriages? Like, for what great end do we build our marriage for? Sadly, like, like many of those in Jesus' day, we initiate and we build our marriages all as a work in our campaign of self. Marriage and who we marry is nothing more than just a complimenting of ourselves. We, 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 want, we want it to fulfill us, which means this. We stay in our marriages for only as long as it is personally fulfilling to us. When things break down, 
when communication pathways get blocked, when, when felt love seems to run dry, we begin to search for an out. We get flippant because of our selfishness. We get flippant with our promises. Which is really, I mean, if you want to talk about the oath thing, is what Jesus even gets into there. What he's talking about with swearing by the temple. Jewish people in Jesus' day, this is how flippant they would treat their promises. They would say, they would make an oath by the gold of the temple, but not by the temple. You you see the difference, right? No, you don't, right? It's 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 a dumb way to make an oath. And what they would do is they would wiggle their way out of what they promised by saying, oh, you see, I, I made an oath by the gold of the temple, not by the temple, and so therefore it's, it's not binding on me. That's what Jesus is addressing in that next section. All of, his, all of it is about the way in which out of our selfishness, out of our self-centeredness, we try to wiggle our way out of what we've committed to. When it gets hard, when the self gets uncomfortable, we begin to try to, to wiggle our way out. Jesus' command around staying in your marriage and leaving for only very specific reasons is meant to cut off at the source the love of self. Let's be honest. Staying in a marriage, any marriage, is difficult. Staying in a marriage that is so, that, that, that so often can come against your own personal self-will, that's a difficult thing to do. When, when marriage is romantically dry or when it's practically depressing, that type of commitment takes great sacrifice of self. And it's that sacrifice of self, that pushing away of your own agenda for personal fulfillment, pushing that away, that is what Jesus is trying to get across here. Your marriage, like I said in the beginning of this section, shows you what you really care about. It shows you what you really value. Your willingness to break apart what God has joined together as sacred, all because it's no longer satisfying you or fulfilling you, that says much more about you than it does about the spouse you're leaving. It reveals the the state of our heart. The heart of Jesus' disciples must be so weaned off of self that we're willing to endure and work at a relationship that is personally agitating and sometimes very unfulfilling personally. Our marriages, as disciples of Jesus, no longer exist only for us. They don't. They, they exist as a place where the values of God's kingdom are put on display. Values of, of sacrifice and, and service and, and ultimately love that prefers the other. That's what our marriages are now about. The, the discipleship of Jesus changes everything, including how we view our marriages. It's all about the willing sacrifice of the self. And this railing against the self, Jesus continues as he picks up on the topic of how we defend ourselves and how we treat our enemies. Now, what Jesus is, says here as he moves into the next section, uh, obviously this has been interpreted in all kinds of ways. Some have interpreted this as Jesus advocating for pacifism. 
Others don't take that interpretation. Let me just tell you, there's probably a, an array of different interpretations about how you feel about this text today. That's okay. This is something we can disagree on, right? Right? Come, come on, people, right? Yes, yes. We can love one another and still disagree about this. But, but, but what is Jesus trying to get across here? Like he did with marriage, Jesus is using the category of enemies in order to reveal to us the state of our hearts. Jesus's radical call to be willing to sacrifice yourself in the face of evil is, in my mind, not, not a call to utter pacifism that in no way pushes back against evil in the world, but rather in keeping with his emphasis on the heart is more about trying to get you to see how devoted to self-preservation you are. Jesus is pushing on very specific buttons about how you try to preserve yourself. Jesus is working against that here. Jesus is working against the love of self. We all have a, a natural inclination to preserve ourselves in every situation, right? And this natural inclination can go too far. It can be self-serving. And again, in the kingdom of God, we are to value sacrifice of self more than we value ourselves. So we don't leave our marriages for self-centered reasons, and we also don't retaliate for self-centered reasons. Instead, we offer up ourselves for the good of others, even the good of our enemies. To give yourself over so that your enemy ultimately prospers. Not necessarily prospers in the evil in which they are planning, the good of your enemy can be complicated itself, right? Because we, we should not sacrifice, our, sacrifice ourselves in order that further uh, the, the evil plans of evil men can continue on. It's not loving to our enemies to give them no resistance in that. We must resist the push of evil. But our resistance, in our resistance against that spread of evil, we, we must also not let ourselves devolve into an evil state ourselves that dehumanizes our enemies. That's, that's the call, and that's the danger for us in how we think about those we call enemies, right? We, the danger is that you yourself will dehumanize them and thereby be evil and corrupted by your own sin. <laughs> so that means that when evil spreads and, and makes advances, we must not let it spread in our own hearts by trying to get even. Can we push back evil? Yes, most certainly. But pushing back evil is not the same as giving ourselves over to hating those we call evil. You must love your enemies. Do you, do you feel the radical call of that? The utter sacrifice of self. Let's do, let's do a case study here. We all got enemies, right? Picture them in your mind right now. I don't have to picture them because one of them's standing right here. I'm just kidding. <laughs> kidding, I love all of you guys, all of you. Picture the enemy in your head. What happens in your heart when that picture comes up? Like, do you really feel a sense of desiring their good? Would you pray for them? And not just for their humbling, I know I did that with Putin, <laughs> but also 
for their prospering, for their eventual good. Could you really want that with sincerity? Would you, could you really want that? Do you feel the radical call of Jesus in this? Just how, how painful it is to sacrifice. But that's the call, friends. That's the call to lay aside your bitterness and your resentment that would cause you to want the downfall of another image bearer of God. And when I say downfall, I mean their destruction. That's what we want for our enemies. We are called to love in ridiculously radical ways that make no sense apart from the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in all of this, I'm, I'm reminded of the story of a man named Gordon Wilson. I don't know if many of you know this man, but in November of 1987, Gordon Wilson was attending a holiday event uh, over in Europe called Remembrance Day uh, with his daughter. And while in, a, in attendance, the, the provisional IRA, which was a terrorist group that was often known as the Irish Republican Army, detonated bombs killing 11 people. And one of those killed was, was Gordon's daughter. And I, and I want you to listen to his recounting of that day as he did a press conference. He says this, just, just tune in. We were both thrown forward, rubble and stones and whatever in and around and over us and under us. I was aware of a pain in, in my right shoulder. I, I shouted to Marie, was she all right? And she said, yes, she, she found my hand and said, is that your hand, dad? Now remember, we were under six feet of rubble. I said, are you all right? And she said, yes but she was shouting in between. Three of four times I asked her and she always said yes, she was all right. When I asked her the fifth time, are you all right, Marie? She said, Daddy, I love you very much. Those were the last words that she spoke to me. She still held my hand quite firmly and I kept shouting at her, Marie, are you all right? But there wasn't a reply. We were there for about five minutes. Someone came and pulled me out. I said, I'm all right, but for God's sake, my daughter is lying right beside me and I don't think she is too well. She's dead. She didn't die there, she, she died later. The, the hospital was magnificent, truly impressive, and our friends have been great. But I miss my daughter and we shall miss her. But I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. Don't ask me, please, for a purpose. I don't have a purpose. I don't have an answer. But I know there has to be a plan. If I didn't think that, I would commit suicide. It's part of a greater plan, a plan in which God is good and that we shall meet again. I have lost my daughter and we shall miss her. But I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. Dirty sort of talk is not going to bring her back to life. I shall pray for those people tonight and every night. May God forgive them. None of us can really put ourselves in Gordon's shoes on that day. None of us can really think through whether he was sincere or, or not on that day. But you see the sincerity of his life as he continued that refrain of forgiveness and love for his enemies throughout the rest of his life up until he died in 1995. If anyone had a reason to hate their enemies, 
It was Gordon Wilson, but he chose to bear no ill will. His heart, as you hear in that recounting, was so captured by the reality of a sovereign God who is essentially and eternally good, that he was able to pray for his enemies just like Jesus commands here. That's the call to you today. I pray and hope you never have to suffer a violent tragedy like like Gordon Wilson did here. But regardless, the call of Jesus is for you to be loosened from yourselves enough to love those that you would call your enemies and eventually actually desire their good. That's the radical call of the heart that Jesus has in this section. And you might be asking the question understandably, how in the world can we actually answer this call? That, and I think that's the right question because it, it, it identifies just how difficult all of this, this call is. And I think the, the answer to that question of how in the world do we do this is in that last line that Jesus gives. If you look at verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, that doesn't sound like a great comforting answer this morning, does it? <laughs> be perfect. Here's the thing. That, 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 that word perfect is kind of a, a poor translation. The, the Greek word that shows up here is tele, teleos, which if you have been around the icon a little bit, you might recognize another Greek word called Telos, yes, exactly, which is, which is about purpose. And, and what Jesus says here in teleos, you therefore must be teleos as your heavenly father is teleos. What he's saying is that you must have singular purpose as your heavenly father has singular purpose. You, this in many ways, this is Jesus's concluding line about everything he's been talking about in this section. Everything he's been talking about, anger and lust and divorce and loving your enemies, Jesus is coming back to what he said in verses 17 through 20, saying, you must be devoted. What's on the inside of you must match with what is showing up on your outward life. You must, like your heavenly father who is singular and whole in his purpose, you must have that as well. No more faking it. No more compartmentalizing our lives. Only real devotion is what Jesus calls us to here today. And when we get that, when we move ourselves into real, heartfelt, singular devotion to God, we can begin to love our enemies in this radical way. When the love of our heart is so directed at who God is, we can stay and work on a terrible marriage. We can begin to work and push back against the lust in our hearts. We can continue to work on peace rather than anger when our hearts are singularly focused on who God is. And that, my friends, as Jesus concludes this teaching block, is is the call of discipleship to you today. A few, a few weeks ago, we hit on this, the need for devotion, and it's good for us to bring it up again. Is your heart devoted 
to God? In what ways is the purpose of your life and the purpose of your heart divided rather than singular, as Jesus calls us to here today? It must be singular. Our devotion must swell as disciples of Jesus. And so to end this teaching block and to end this sermon, let me just walk through two ways, and then I'm, I'm in my seat, two ways on how to grow in this devotion and singular purpose that Jesus calls us to. First, a virtue like this of utter devotion takes practice. Can we, can we just say that? Many of us are waiting for that one day where, where all the fluff of our hearts is just lopped off and then from that day on, we're just fully devoted to Jesus. Friend, that day's not, that day's not coming until you die. So. Don't look forward to that as much as you do. What we need is, is practice. We need to give ourselves to things that will slowly make our hearts all the more devoted and singular. And so if you, if you hear this call, which I hope you do, of singular devotion to who God is, the best thing you can do is start to give yourselves to the practices that swell and look like devotion. <laughs> That, that's what you can do. That's how you become a devoted person is you begin to do practices of the devoted disciple. You become that type of person. So, so in his book, and by the way, I found this quote this morning, uh, so we don't have it. Sorry, guys. Um, but in, in his book, this is the title here, Acedia and its Discontents, Metaphysical Boredom in an Empire of Desire. Uh, R.J. Snell says this. The quote is much easier than the title. Don't worry. He says on this practice of virtue, we stay under the yoke, which is his term for virtue, in very concrete ways, keeping the prayers, finishing the report, paying our bills, wiping away childish tears, doing the dishes, cleaning the car, caring for our tools. Through staying in mundane, ordinary work, we stay under the yoke. This staying under the yoke allows for virtue since natural virtue requires habitation. There is no virtue without repetition, and so we stay, sink our roots deep, and find the rich soil of virtue. Parents can confirm this. Is parenting exhausting? Sometimes yes, but a new character forms with every nap, meal, diaper, meltdown, and wet bed. And this is the final line that I want you to hear. We become the people we are by what we choose to do again. If you want to have a life that is singularly focused on God, if you want to answer this call of discipleship, give yourself to the devoted practices of a disciple because you become the type of people we are by what we choose to do again. And then finally, to grow in this devotion and to close this teaching block of Jesus. Like we said, when we went through 17 through 20. If you want to become a devoted disciple of Jesus, you look to who Jesus is. Nothing else, even practice itself, will ultimately capture your heart enough to make you devoted. To have a singular purpose, when you look at who Jesus is and the lengths to which he's gone to be committed to us, to love us, his enemies. That will slowly win the devotion of your heart. Paul, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, right? He says that the love of Christ compels us. 
We have concluded that one has died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but him who for their sake died and was raised. That's what we're talking about here. It's to have the love of Christ so compel you, so control you that you no longer live for yourself through divorce and retaliation and lust and anger, but rather offer your whole self up to Jesus Christ, living for him who for your sake died and was raised. Discipleship, friends, is always about not just following Jesus, but always looking to Jesus. So as we close this this teaching block, I hope that you'll enter into a time of just reflection on who Jesus is. Certainly feel whatever sense of conviction you need to feel for him today. But ultimately, for for every 10 looks you look at yourself, for every one look you look at yourself, look 10 times to Jesus Christ. Because that's the one look that's gonna actually bring the devotion that Jesus demands here. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that that everything it took to to make us disciples, you did willingly, the, the sacrifice that it took to send your son in order to save your enemies. God, we thank you that you you loved your enemies first before you ever called us to do it ourselves. I thank you that, that Jesus Christ is the, not just ultimate example, but also ultimate motivation to be a devoted disciple. And I pray that today we, we would sense and feel a sense of conviction around where our hearts are divided how we've compartmentalized our lives where we can come in here on Sunday or maybe go to our community group throughout the week, but really the rest of our life looks like nothing, nothing significant in our discipleship. Help us to feel how much more you call us to in devotion. And as we feel that, may our hearts swell and rejoice at the grace and love of Jesus Christ that is able to control us and and move us so much that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for you, Jesus, who for our sake died and was raised. Lord, would you deal with your people this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us in gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.